It's said that resilient human beings can prevail in the most trying of circumstances. But how about this? First, no food and drink for 19 hours a day. And as we enter Ramadan, Islam's holy month of fasting, that's what more than a billion people on the planet will observe for 30 days in the peak of summer. But imagine trying to observe that season of fasting combined with 11 years of prison detention without trial, some of which is spent in total solitary confinement. That was the challenge facing Baba Ahmad. My name's Mark Dowd, and for the special Ramadan edition of Things Unseen, the programme for people who think there's more to life than the purely physical, I've come down to Tooting in South London to meet Baba Ahmad to talk to him about Ramadan, how he came to be extradited to the USA after eight years in UK prisons without trial, and what he's learned from the experience. His detractors say he helped encourage the Taliban and protect Osama bin Laden, but his many supporters claim he was treated unjustly and subject to inhumane treatment. How has his understanding and appreciation of the Islamic holy month evolved and changed after all that he's been through? You were born in 1974, raised as a child of the 1980s, and in 1992 you were a teenager and you travelled to Bosnia. What were the circumstances that conspired to get you to go to Bosnia? I think it was just the media reports at the time of what was happening to um, people in Bosnia that reminded me of the um, Holocaust. I went there um, to help distribute aid, visited refugee camps. I entered Bosnia and then um, the stories that I heard there and the people that I met and the experiences that I had there, it uh, prompted me to uh, take up arms to defend the Bosnian Muslims. Was this a life-changing experience in terms of, of, of the evidence that you um, had laid before you? Minarets of mosques had been destroyed. I saw that. I saw thousands of refugees living in squalid conditions. And it was the stories of imams, Muslim clerics having their genitals castrated, pages from the Quran being uh, used uh, as toilet paper, and the mass rapes, I thought that I don't want to uh, give food and water to people to whom this is happening. I want to stop it happening. It wasn't just Bosnia, was it? That You came back to London, you studied, and then you went to Chechnya. Was that similar to Bosnia or very different? What did you see and experience there? Yeah, Chechnya was different. So it was similar in some ways and in that a foreign army or invader was attacking a Muslim country. And um, the level of atrocities in Chechnya, some of them were similar, not as bad as what happened in Bosnia, but they were similar. But yes, I went to Chechnya. This time I went with the express intention of fighting there. But um, it, took, it was so difficult to get in that by the time I got in, uh, a, a ceasefire had been uh, signed and so I just ended up doing some aid work there and then I came back. Are you a very different person at the end of the 1990s compared with the beginning of the 1990s in terms of your experience? Because you know you saw a lot of things firsthand with your own eyes that most people in this country would only have heard about on the radio and seen little bits of on the TV. Absolutely, yes. I mean, my after my first visit to Bosnia, um, I was a different person. And definitely by the end of the 90s, what I had seen, what I had experienced, um, I had friends that were killed 
in Bosnia on the battlefield myself I was injured after all of these experiences then I had a different view of the world what was the connection between what you saw in Bosnia and Chechnya and the creation of of the website azam.com azam.com I set up after the war in Bosnia ended in 1996 and I had about 30 friends that were killed there so I set that up to help honor the legacy of those friends and to make it as a platform to talk about the stories of these heroes of these great men who left their countries from all over the world whom no one knew about and they came there to help these innocent people so that was the reason the website was initially set up the website you said 98% of it was was dedicated to material about bosnia and chechnya but of course uh, with calamitous consequences for yourself 2% of it um, or perhaps even just two articles talked about financial support and material support for the Taliban. You didn't put those articles up there, but it was your website. Who put them up there and how did that come to happen? So about four years after the website was set up and we're covering material on Bosnia and the, the second war in Chechnya, then we decided at some point to support the Taliban regime, which at the time was trying to establish an Islamic government in Afghanistan and part of it was the hope that after everything that's happened to Muslims in the 90s Bosnia Chechnya Kosovo what everything that is happening that maybe this is this is the sanctuary where Muslims can go to and they will feel safe much like Israel was set up after the uh, second world war so there was that hope in terms of who actually put it up, we had dozens of volunteers from all over the world, web-based volunteers, and um, one of them uploaded it. And I ultimately took um, responsibility for it because even though I didn't put it up, I was the one who set up the website in the first place. So the idea that the Taliban were going to you know, be the creators of this safe haven, if you like, uh, and create a, 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 an Islamic state that would protect all these people who were fleeing from other countries you know was that at the time and perhaps still is today seen as something as, as quite a radical or hardline view the taliban they took power in 1996 and for four years we did not support them so for four years we mowed on the question are they on the right side are they on the wrong side are they doing something right are they doing something bad so we did struggle with that question whether or not we have to support because it wasn't as clear-cut as the situation in Bosnia or Chechnya and Kosovo where a foreign invader has invaded a um, land and they're defending themselves it was a bit different so yes definitely it was something out of the norm it did have a lot of support because a lot of Muslims were fed up in the 90s in Britain there was this sense that Britain might be the next Bosnia but um seeing British people as uh, Serbs doing the things that they did to Muslims there seems a very um, exaggerated comparison. I mean, most people in Britain would be very offended by that comparison. Um, not really, because the Serbs who did such atrocities to the Bosnians had lived alongside them as neighbours and friends and colleagues for centuries. So 
it's not that actually far-fetched. And this was happening in Europe, on the doorstep of Europe. The whole world was silent. The UN didn't do anything. The international community didn't do anything. And there was a sense of, hey, if that happens here, then um, we're just going to be sitting ducks. We have to do something to protect ourselves. And obviously, looking back, it's you know it was far-fetched. But at the time, I believed that. And um, a lot of people, including... Who had those who had not been to to Bosnia experienced these things? They they held that view as well. It was quite a mainstream view in the Muslim community in Britain. You said that your support for the Taliban, in retrospect, was naive, and that you wasn't really clear what they were up to. But you know, in the late nineties, in ninety eight, they uh, there have been attacks on the uh, American embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. There have been attack on a military vessel, the USS Cole. Wasn't there evidence around that? They perhaps had a rather sinister plan. After those attacks, the 98 embassy bombings, the USS Cole attack, Al-Qaeda and bin Laden in particular were clear to disassociate themselves and say, we didn't do this because um, we've given our word to the Taliban that uh, we're not going to attack anyone from, from our country, from, from this country. So if I've got Al-Qaeda on one hand saying this, and Bill Clinton or George Bush, on the other hand, saying, no, it was Al-Qaeda, you know, you tend to take sides and it's pretty obvious who I'm going to believe and who I'm not going to believe. So in retrospect, a few years down the line, after they did explicitly claim responsibility that, no, it wasn't just sympathetic people, it was actually planned and done by us. So that's the naivety where it comes in, that it, there was a complicated relationship between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, which wasn't known. And it's pretty obvious that um, Al-Qaeda, they, for want of a better word, they betrayed the hospitality of the Taliban government, who had given them sanctuary. And that led to the events of which took place on 9-11. So that's where the naivety comes into it. A complicated situation unlike bosnia and chechnya i haven't been there i haven't lived under the taliban i don't we don't really know what's going on there to make a decision to support that then that is what i believe was naive but um i have no regrets for supporting the jihad or the mujahideen in bosnia or chechnya who were defending innocent people and um i don't believe i was naive in that in 2004, you're arrested and you spend eight years in a series of UK prisons without being charged. What was it like fasting and trying to implement and live out Ramadan in, in such circumstances? I mean, I can't believe that your prison officers be entirely sympathetic to that. There's a lot of Muslims in prison in this country, disproportionately high number, and there are procedures in place to help those Muslims that want to observe Ramadan to be able to do it. And I guess for me, during those eight years, so I was in different prisons and I did Ramadan in many different prisons. It differed from prison to prison in terms of the food that you were given, in terms of the provisions. Um, some of it was more difficult than uh, than others. But generally, I think the the prison authorities they sort of they they I think they just just let they they were used to it and they let people get on with it. I mean, occasionally you'd have like uh, prison officers who felt they were like some part some type of Sharia police, 
So they would go on prison visits and uh, they would make lists of names of inmates who were seen, who were on the Ramadan fasting list, but were seen to be uh, eating a Snickers bar or a can of Coke with their families. And they would go and um, report that to the uh, to the imams. And, you know, which was it's sort of like they're trying to catch you out. But um, most of the Muslim prisoners who did it, they did it properly. Um, did you get the food delivered when you needed it? Because, I mean, you go for long periods of fasting. You need to eat in very precise times. Perhaps there's only a, an hour or two or three hours when you can actually um, break that fast before it starts again. I was in high security category A prisons in the UK. And once the door is locked for the night, it does not open again unless there is a life-threatening medical emergency. So what they would do, like for the night, for the early morning pre-dawn suhoor meal, they would, the night before they would give you some milk or you may get a baguette or you may get some cereal what they call like a breakfast pack, you'd have that, but you'd have to eat that cold. So you can't have hot porridge or you can't have anything hot. You'd have to eat that cold. And for the night, what they implemented in the last few years when there was a large gap between the fast opening and the prison locking for the night, you had this special, what they call the Ramadan box. Now, this was a... They still use it especially now in the summer months, a Ramadan box is a hundred pounds. Uh, I think they got it from the German army. It's like a steel box about um, the, the size of a shoe box, like a large shoe box. And it's got some special insulating foam. It's got some type of gel that actually keeps the food piping hot as if it's come off the stove. It will keep it hot for up to six hours. So, Four o'clock, you would get your Ramadan box and it stays in your room. And then nine o'clock, the fast opens. And when you open it, it's like it's come straight off the stove. And if you break it or damage it or lose it or do anything with it, then £100 is coming out of your prison uh, uh, cash account. So I think that was, I mean, credit due to the... You know, I've got a lot of complaints against the prison service, but um, this was one of the things where I think credit is uh, is due. So in the UK, uh, during your years in prison here, you're in um, these small group isolation uh, situations. What, what was fasting like in those circumstances? So that was the five years that I spent on a detainee unit. And there were seven of us all detainees held without trial or Muslim detainees held without trial and we were on a small unit which was isolated from the rest of the um, the prison we weren't allowed to mix with any other prisoners because Ramadan is all about community you know you you open fast with your family you open it with the with the mosque uh, at the mosque for example so here we are seven detainees on this small quiet unit in a small courtyard so if someone sneezes you can you can hear them in their cell so one of them would give the call to prayer at the time when the sunset would come then individually in our cells we would um, you just open the fast by yourself you open your ramadan steel box you eat your food and then an hour later when everyone starts praying the night prayer you hear this wonderful melody, this wonderful chorus, 
of different prisoners in their cell reciting the uh, the Quran for the night prayers. And that was beautiful and that would continue all night long until the uh, until the morning. And I remember on one of these nights I actually had what you call would you call it a supernatural experience or a spiritual experience or call it whatever you like but um at the time I experienced that I was not, wasn't suffering from any sort of psychosis. So it was the 19th of Ramadan uh 2009 and I was in um, HM prison Long Larton in Worcestershire so I set my alarm to get up at 3am whatever the time was and as soon as I got up I smelt this strong smell of perfume that filled my cell and I'd remember that smell because sometimes when people were killed like fighters were killed in Bosnia some of my friends were killed in Bosnia I smelt the same smell around their bodies. The explanation for that is basically a divine presence or the presence of angels because they bring with them heavenly scents. So I smelt that and then in the morning I mentioned it to um I mentioned it to my neighbor in passing that hey you know what happened I smelt this smell I woke up and I just smelt this strong smell in my um cell. And my neighbor said to me he said at that time he said I was up and I was praying. and i saw this uh, light shine out from the wall and shine onto my face for a few minutes and then go away so um i joked with them i said well maybe that was the angel who was coming to your cell and as he was coming to your cell he just passed by my cell on the way and he just filled it with his uh, uh, heavenly scent so that happened to me once something like that hasn't happened to me before that happened to me once and that was in in uh, um in ramadan uh in the detainee unit And in October 2012 you're extradited to the USA but there you're in solitary confinement all the time for two years. Now what was it like practicing fasting and and Ramadan in those circumstances because that would have been even more trying compared with the UK. I spent two years in isolation in complete solitary confinement in a supermax prison um on the east coast of America and Ramadan there was difficult. There was no Ramadan box. There's no hot meals. I mean, there were hot meals, but the way I had to do it was three times a day you would get your standard meal in a polystyrene box through a slot in the door. So, um, seven o'clock in the morning you get your breakfast, eleven o'clock in the morning your lunch, and four o'clock in the afternoon you get your uh, dinner. So I would stack all of these polystyrene boxes on my steel table. and keep them there so eight o'clock i would open my fast with cold porridge that was about 15 hours old or some cold rice or some cold bland peas but you know what it was the most delicious thing i'd ever had because i'd been fasting for like 15 hours so i just gobbled it down i'll just eat all of it down Uh, sleep was also a problem because you're trying to sleep or you're trying to pray the night prayers and inmates who have been in isolation for years and they can't handle it they would shout and scream and swear and bang on the doors all night long so it's a bit difficult to connect and find your spirituality and have this conversation with god when you've got all of this uh, racket going on so i did that for 2 years and in addition to all of that I'm working on my case for up to 14 hours a day. 
So I'm fasting what like eight hours a day. I've got a um, I've got a legal visit, and before that, I've done two hours of legal work, and then I'll come back. And the last three or four hours, I'm working on my case before the fast opens. So um, it was a struggle. It's very difficult. You went to some fairly extraordinary lengths to block out that noise, didn't you, in those prison cells? What did you do? Well, my sleeping procedure would involve um, seven pairs of socks, a T-shirt and a shampoo bottle. So blocking out the noise, you have to block out the air gaps in your electronic door. So I would get the seven pairs of socks and I would use a spork to push them deep into those gaps on the edges all around the door. And uh, then I'd put a T-shirt at the bottom and then wet tissue paper to seal the slot. And then the shampoo bottle, there was a vent blowing air into the cell. And if you get a particular shampoo bottle, it has to be a particular one that you buy on your weekly commissary. And if you balance it at the right angle, so my aeronautical engineering degree, I think may have helped in that. It came to some use. Um, If you balance it at the right angle, as the air comes over it, it creates like a constant wind tunnel effect it makes like a so that it drowns out all the other bangs and screams and noises and then because it's a constant your brain can filter that out so then that's how i'd go to sleep it'll take me about half an hour to do this routine before i'd go to sleep and then three or four times in the night the shampoo bottle would fall over and um as it would fall over then i'd wake up because of the banging and i'd have to go back and rebalance half asleep, rebalance the shampoo bottle and then go back to sleep. And that would happen three or four nights. For two years, that happened. Ramadan, with all the fasting and the physical deprivation, isn't just meant to be a, like an obstacle course. You know, It's meant to be a spiritual deepening, isn't it? It's, it's meant to be something that makes you aware of your reliance on God and the fact that everything is down to God. Did you feel in these most trying of circumstances that sense of deepening during those periods of Ramadan in prison? Did did you feel the spiritual depths that God was inviting you to explore? Absolutely. I mean, in those years in solitary confinement in Ramadan, I felt like I had lost absolutely everything. Job, house, marriage, money, family, liberty. I'm I'm in a foreign country. I'm, 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 I'm locked in a cell all day. Everything has been taken away from me. So when everything is taken away from you and you have one thing remaining, which was my faith, my, my, my religion, then that one thing becomes dearer to you than anything. So I would not see it as an obstacle. I would relish it. I would look forward to it. And I would actually feel sad towards the end that it's about to finish now. And even now, looking back, so three years ago, I was fasting in those situations there is a sense of nostalgia or feeling sad that um, Ramadan there was on a um, a completely different level. A completely, it had more meaning and it meant something much more uh, to me than it has meant since in the the two years since I've come out of prison. And that's because it's a bit easier now because everyone else is doing it. Whereas in the prison, it's you and God, and you're stripped back your absolute bare essentials is that the difference yes not necessarily that it's easier but the sense of in that cell it's just you and god there's no family member there's no community there's no one at the mosque there's no one there's no internet there's no social it's just you and god 
and you're fasting only for him and only he knows that you're fasting and Ramadan since I came out of prison it, it hasn't been the same you know it just hasn't been the same there's something special to uh, doing Ramadan in solitary confinement well I get the feeling you don't want to go back and try it all over again I suspect that's probably beyond your present set of preferences but of course one thing you did do in those prison um, years was read you read the Bible was that a new departure for you I'd always wanted to read the Bible and um, when I was in solitary confinement I'd read it cover to cover and I made notes of my favorite sections and favorite passages and it was um, one of the most wonderful experiences that um, that I had it was just brilliant which passages stick in your mind now i'm a catholic we have a reputation for not knowing the bible so this is a, a risky humiliating point of the interview where you now uh, outdo me on your knowledge of the bible well the obvious one i can't remember the 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 uh, the, the, the reference but it's uh, and proclaim freedom for the cat- captive and release from uh, prison for the prisoner but um, other than that the psalms were very powerful the book of psalms were very powerful there were verses in the bible where god mentions that um i was in prison and you didn't come to visit me and i was hungry and you didn't feed me and i was thirsty and you didn't give me to drink and then the person says to god but you know you're you how can you be in prison you're god or how can you be hungry or thirsty and he replies that my servant so and so was in prison or he was hungry or he was thirsty and had you gone to visit him or fed him or given him to drink then you would have found me there with him so the stories of hope the stories of um uh, being kind to people be be kind to the stranger because you were once strangers in the land be kind to the traveler because you were once travelers in the land and so many things that resonated with what i read from the quran and obviously there were parts of the bible that i didn't uh, uh, accept but the majority of it was just it was an amazing experience and and i'd really benefited from it and one very particular special experience for you was reading victor frankl's man's search for meaning and listening to your account of that um listeners to things on scene will know that we have a particular special place for this because we did a whole program on victor frankl why did this speak to you so much because it's ultimately a story about the redemptive power of suffering isn't it yes so victor frankl was an austrian psychologist who spent 3 years in the um in auschwitz and concentration camps uh, in the second world war and he wrote this book on scraps of paper and he smuggled it out while he was actually there and for me it sort of put my situation in perspective here's a man who's going through some unbelievable suffering and his key message was man cannot control what others do to him but he always 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 can control his reaction and his response to that and that for me was such a powerful message and for me that translated into whatever i was going through i was lonely and yes there were points of despair and yes i did miss my family and i was homesick and 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 i was fearful about the future and i was anxious about what was going to happen to me i was facing the rest of my life in prison in solitary confinement in a foreign country but at that times i would still find the strength and this book helped me to do that i would find the strength to smile 
at the offices in the morning. And so I got a lot of strength from that book. I read it twice when I was in solitary confinement. And I think it was partly responsible for me having come through that experience. What everything I went through, including being assaulted by the police and having injuries sustained in this country and everything that I went through, it has brought me from that experience uh, without anger, without hatred, without bitterness, without the wanting revenge against anyone, because um, it's my narrative, it's my story, it's my experience. And I have a choice in how to remember it and look back on it. And I look back on it. Yes, there were difficult moments, but that whole 11 years that I spent in prison, I look back at it as a wonderful, rich spiritual and social experience was there a moment a day a week where you did hit the proverbial rock bottom where you thought you know despair is that sense there's going to be no end to this and i'm trapped and i can't get out of it did did you ever flirt with those moments because most human beings would have done absolutely so there were a lot of low moments but i think for me the lowest moment came I still remember May 2005, so I lost my first stage of my extradition hearing, which I actually had hoped that I was going to win. And for me, that was the first time in my life that I actually questioned God. And I asked the question, why? And it's never happened to me before, and it never happened since, since because it lasted about a day, I think, or it lasted about one night, actually, lasted that night. And then by the morning, I repented and I said, of course, you know, who am I to ask you why when you know everything, the future, the past, the present. And But um, what gave me comfort was that there's a verse in the Quran where even a prophet of God who is undergoing such severe circumstances, even he cries out to God and he asks him that when is God, when is your help going to come? And then God answers, it's going to come soon. So what you learn from that is when a rope becomes too tight, it snaps. And whenever a situation reaches breaking point and you feel you can't take it anymore, then that is the point where God, he brings you a, a relief. So that was the lowest point. And it, it happened once. It didn't happen. I mean, there were a lot of low points, but that was the absolute rock bottom where, where I actually had the audacity to, 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 to question uh, God. But uh, thankfully, I came through that and I'm grateful and I'm glad and happy that whatever God did for me and including me spending another 10 years in prison after that point and whatever I saw and experienced and whoever I met and the way, in, the manner in which I came back with the judge uh, declaring that this man is not a terrorist and me coming back with my honor and dignity intact without any anger or bitterness or hatred. Had I been released then, maybe I would not have those feelings or had those experiences. Tell me about the little bird on the windowsill. When you are in solitary confinement, then um, you are you're alone. Sometimes you just want to talk to someone. You talk to the officers, you talk to other prisoners by blowing out a, a, a toilet paper insert and and blowing out the water from the sink and speaking through the sink, speaking through the vents. So one particular day I was just a bit lonely and I was just looking out of the window and we were like in, a, is in the prison was in a natural bird sanctuary. There'll be a lot of birds. And then this bird, it came to the, uh, it actually came to that window. The window doesn't open. It's like a small slit. And he just came there and he just sat. 
And I was right there at the window and he just looked at me. He made eye contact with me as if to say that I know what you're going through and you're not alone. And he was free. So even though there was a, a glass between us, but um, that small thing, it gave me hope that um, one day I'll be where he is and um, look where I am now. You pleaded guilty uh, in the United States. What did you plead guilty to? I pleaded guilty to allowing those two articles to be posted in support of the Taliban on the website that I set up that had about 4,000 articles. So I pleaded guilty to those two articles. As the founder of the website, I accepted responsibility for them. And and you weren't just pleading guilty as an opportunistic way of a plea bargain, getting a, a lenient, a hopefully lenient sentence and, and getting back to the UK. Leaving all that aside, you do accept that you were guilty of what they were saying that you did? Well, according to US law, I was guilty. So from a legal point of view, I absolutely was guilty. From a practical point of view, if I didn't plead guilty, I was facing the rest of my life in solitary confinement. So even from a practical point of view, I have no regrets that I made the right decision. But legally, according to United States law, then yes, I was guilty. The trial judge um, said a lot of very nice, positive things about you. But she also said your websites were a source of information unlike anything that had been on the web before. That was quite a serious thing for her to say, wasn't it? Well, if you look at the context in which she said that, she said that in reference to Bosnia and to Chechnya, because out of 4,000 articles, 98% of them were about the conflicts in Bosnia and Chechnya. But yes, it was the first type of website of its sort. It was, yes. You've been separated from your loved ones and your family for the best part of 11 and a half years. The night that you were reunited with them was a very particular and special night, wasn't it, in the Islamic calendar? Tell us about that. It was the 27th night of Ramadan, 2015, the night that I came home. I had been, for security reasons, my family, neither my family nor I knew which day I would be coming back. And um, earlier, that we didn't know if I would be back in time for Eid or not. So three days before Eid, 27th night of Ramadan, so I'm in America and they tell me, okay, you're going home now. And the foreign office, uh, they told my family after the plane had departed that um, he's coming back, he'll be back tonight. And these are his uh, uh, flight details. So by the time I actually reached home and I think it was uh, the, the police actually dropped me off. Nice of them to uh, drop me off after taking me away for 11 years. So they dropped me home and... Um, it was about uh, midnight on the 27th night of Ramadan, which is known as the night of power, the night of destiny. And it is believed that um, that is the night that the Quran was revealed and sent down. So just paint me the picture when you come in through the door on that night. What, what do you see? What do you hear? Well, um, all of my family members in this country from 12 months up to like eight years, um, there's about 20 people in the room. And um, they've put welcome home um, balloons and, and posters all over the room. Um, and then I um, 
walk in and um, just that the children jump all over me and then my parents hug me and they cry. Um, then I go to a corner of the room and I make a prostration of thanks to God. And um, it was unlike anything I've ever experienced in my life. And only someone who has experienced something similar would know what that feeling is. It's clear from listening to Baba Ahmed that Ramadan and one's understanding of the Holy Fast is not something set in stone. It evolves, it changes, depending on your life experiences. And this is a man who underwent exceptional demands, not only on his physical health, but also on his mental and spiritual state. His critics say his admission that he was naive in his support for the Taliban is a smokescreen for the work of a skilled propagandist. But to others especially many Muslims, he's an unquestionable hero who emerged intact after 11 years of unjust treatment, a man who found strength and solace in the practice of Ramadan and all its demands. My name is Mark Dowd, and from Tooting in South London, you've been listening to Things Unseen, the programme for people who think there's more to life than the purely physical. Things Unseen is a production for CTVC. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.